0: Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your health care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit CDC.gov. Good
1: morning, good morning, or good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you happen to be in the globe right now. Welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keyes. I'm your host Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys, also on Facebook Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram Saturdays with Joy Keys. A lot of great pictures. We also do a lot of giveaways. I'll be giving away something today, so you really want to stay tuned. And also, now the show is on Spotify, Stitcher iTunes and here at Blog Talk Radio. So no matter where you're listening to your music, you can also switch over and listen to the show. Um, you can also email me at Saturdays with Joy Keys at Hotmail.com. Well, today I have a guest from across the globe, not across the pond, but really across the globe. Um, she is a business executive, a former head of business engagement at the World Economic Forum in Switzerland. She has served on many boards of international organizations. She holds a master's and a uh, degree from Harvard University, JFK School of Government. She has a powerful new memoir, My Blood Divides and Unites. Um, it recounts Jasmine's upcoming, uh, coming-of-age uh, tale of oppression, discrimination, and marginalization in South Africa. And uh, she's on the line right now. Jasmine, good morning. Morning, Joy. Well, what is it for you? It's uh, five o'clock, six, five o'clock there now, right? In it, South it's Africa, it's five
2: o'clock. Yes, so early, early evening.
1: Early evening, um, and so how's the weather there?
2: Um, the first of September coming up soon is is the fir- is the beginning of spring for us. So it's nice to get the weather getting a bit warmer. As on your side, you'll be going into fall.
1: Yes. Isn't that strange how um, because of these equators and things that one person can have winter, somebody has summer, somebody has spring. It's just amazing. Really, it is. (laughs) It is. (laughs) So, wow, this is a really intense book. I mean, sometimes you might have to put it down in reading it because it brings up a lot of feelings for particularly blacks and whites um, and and, and also in relation to America. It's very apropos, like I said, for what's happening here. Um, and, and I, my key word I thought about in reading was the perception. People have a lot of perceptions about things that may or may not be true, and, and that's something you deal with in the book. But let's talk about why did you write the book for, for your own reasons? Why did you write the book?
2: For a few reasons. One, I wanted to tell my story of being historically mixed race in South Africa on an international stage. Historically mixed race people arose In South Africa from the mid-1600s by the racial mixing of European settlers with the indigenous Khoisan and slaves brought in from Madagascar, Sri Lanka, India and and other lands and this racial mixing and slave background was considered shameful and was not taught at our schools and there was this mystery in in my blood and um, I unpacked that for myself and wanted to share that unique history with international people and then very importantly, we're at a time now when the racial divide globally is greater than ever. And my story brings in stories of others from around the world, spanning America. I've interviewed an African American, a white American to get their perspective, someone from Mexico, across to India, Pakistan, Nepal, and, and, and Rwanda. And these stories provide a message to all on racial reconciliation, hope, and healing.
1: Yes, you do have a wonderful couple chapters with other people's stories from around the globe. Uh, How long did it take you to write this? Because they have so many interviews and different anecdotes. How long did it take?
2: It took uh, two and a half years, a lot longer than I initially thought. And it was like peeling layers of an onion to get to the core of of self-discovery.
1: That's amazing. Um, When you uh, wrote the book, did you think about maybe... How your family or friends might think you share a lot of personal feelings um, and your transformation. Um, what was their reaction, your
2: friends and family to this book? Well with my close family, it felt like a family project as I sense checked ideas, siblings, my parents were invaluable in in sharing family history, and I 'm so blessed that they're still alive and could could uh, pass on that information. My identical twin sister um, is, is, is such a joy. She lives in Australia, and, and she could help me recall some of my childhood wood memories. Uh, my brother is very passionate about exploring our DNA, and he helped me identify different genetic DNA sites to provide additional DNA information. And, and the book brought healing to our family and also peace concerning uh, troubling aspects in, in our past.
1: Wow, that's really, you're blessed because sometimes people write memoirs and, you know, they bring out stuff that people wanted to keep hidden, but it's very nice to hear that your family supported you. Just give a little more explanation of the different racial categories that happened uh, during apartheid uh, in South Africa.
2: Sure, we have uh, white and then black, uh, uh, as the black, mainly Africans, and then Indian, and then historically mixed race people, um, which I alluded to earlier, and it's an ethnic group from which I, I come from, and I, I have many African-American uh, friends who find this very confusing, because they'll say, you know, you all black, during apartheid, you had different... Communities, different education systems, different toilets for all these separate racial categories, and it's uh, with legal racial categories.
1: That sounds similar to the Hutu and the Tutsis, um, and how people, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference between who was a Hutu or a Tutsi, but they tried to divide that country um, and, and put labels on people that really didn't make any sense. Um, you went and like you mentioned you did a DNA test um with the help of your brother and what did you find out with that DNA test about yourself and your family
2: and so my black bands across the world i'm i'm 38% european 28% african a quarter indian and 7% east asian so i'm i'm my own melting pot And then there were a few surprises. I didn't know I have any Jewish blood, and I'm I'm 6% Ashkenazi Jewish. And my African blood, which is 28%, spans across the continent, and and that I didn't expect my African blood to be so spread out. Isn't that amazing that, again, our
1: perception or labels don't really, really encompass everything that we are as a human being? And um, I think that is one of the things could help people. Do you think taking DNA DNA tests might um, help people learn more about themselves and also deal with this uh, conflict that people have across racial lines and 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 oppression and and things like that?
2: Uh, absolutely, Joy. It, it connects us to our humanity. As you know, one could have a test and 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 not realize that you're carrying. A gene pool of um, Another group of people that you considered The other or didn't like In South Africa we have issues with Xenophobia against other Africans But um, a lot of South Africans we've got African blood Because there was historically um, Migration of people From the other parts Of Africa into South Africa So it does really remind You of of the connectedness and, 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 And the shared humanity In our blood from american
1: african american point of view view, a lot of African Americans who may not be aware of these differences and, and um the xenophobia really are confused like you like you said earlier, you guys are all African, and for us, you know can't you all get along you know it, it's it's a little confusing, <laughs> but we also have that here in in America, we have colorism, you know, so your're light. You're dark. All these things it, it, people put you on a hierarchy. And back uh in the day, let's say slavery, you know, light skin people maybe were in the house, they were house niggers, and then you had the field niggers, they were darker. And um even today that has still happened where, say in the sixties they had a brown paper bag test. If you were lighter than that you got into a party, but if you were darker you couldn't come in. Oh no. So, um Yes, and it's crazy the things that humans make up in their minds to separate. Anything to, I feel, get one up on another, you know, to to feel like they're better Mm. than something and somebody's below them. But um, I don't want to go ahead because you talk about this a little bit further in the book. So um, let me ask you this. When was the first time you realized that, you know, you were colored and somebody discriminated against you because you were colored in South Africa?
2: And um, uh, yes, in South Africa. So I was raised in an exclusively historically mixed race community. I'm more sensitive, obviously, to the label colors because I know in America it's considered an offensive term. Whereas in South Africa, it's a, it's a legal racial category. And so I was brought up in a bubble. But I, I remember, as a teenager, being spat at by a white boy as he walked past with a group of friends, and I was shocked. I was I was stunned. Yes. That would stun you. I mean, that's happened here in America. And even
1: for young black men to look at a white woman, you know, if, if he looked at a white woman, then he was at risk for, you know, being lynched or something like that. And today you can see it's even severe with the police interactions. Um, They may not even have a weapon, but somehow they get shot, you know. Uh, it, it's very crazy how that fear of the other brings out such aggression you know, and it's really not based on logic. It's not. him. The voice spitting on you, that was, like, ridiculous. You know what I mean? What What was that going to do? Mm. I mean, what was that going to help, you know? Um, so now, how are you dealing with the trauma? How do people deal with the trauma of apartheid in South Africa? Uh, say the older generation versus the younger generation, how are they each dealing with apartheid effects?
2: Um, we've I think we haven't adequately dealt with our trauma. We had um, a truth and reconciliation process um, uh, w- w- uh, just at the beginning of our, our new democracy, perpetrators of um, of apartheid together to and for the victims to share their pain. I think in South Africa, we've tried to focus on the economic redress and that still has a way to go. And, and I actually propose in my book that we have a second truth and reconciliation process um, as, our, uh, you know, there's still a lot of pain uh, and, and I think we easily triggered because that trauma hasn't yet been dealt with adequately. Why do you think that can happen here in America? We haven't had that.
1: People somehow are not able uh, in math, let's say, talk with each other um about what happened it's, it's very hard for white americans to still say that slavery existed that there was jim crow they still can't admit what's going on now even though we have video of police shooting black men um all the time every other week you're hearing something black women that are actually no weapons at all in many cases how come it's so hard here what, what are your thoughts on that
2: I I just, you know, while there are similarities between the South African and American experience with discrimination in in South Africa, Blacks are the majority. And in America, African Americans are in the minority and possibly the issue is not seen as as a priority and not treated um, as a priority, unfortunately. I mean, for
1: us. For African-Americans, I'm African-American. It is a priority because now people are scared. Really, they're scared to go out. You just have no idea what's going to happen. Um, The other day, a, a young boy had a rifle, ran past two cop cars. They didn't get stopped, and he had just shot two people. And he was not stopped. He went home, and he was able to get arrested the next day, and nothing happened to him. But, you know, a black man with no weapons whatsoever um, or a black woman, they attacked her in her home, um, and the shotguns—it it was crazy. So we—we are—we um, need truth and re- reconciliation here. We really do. We, we need it. We demand it, and that's why people are protesting so much. Um, one of the things you talk about in your chap in your book is your dad. Really touching story about your dad. Like I—I I was like almost crying, and I talked to my mom about oh. it. You know, because oh, it made me think you. about my my grandfather in a way and how he just worked and I, um, things that maybe he went through. I wasn't able to talk to him and, and, and have his story yes. or hear his story. So let me ask you this. What did you learn about your father's life? Like, what was the most surprising thing in talking with him about his experience in apartheid?
2: Um Yes, and the book, really, I'm so grateful because it really gave me that opportunity to hear him out because I just formed my own judgments. And in our family structures, you don't really discuss these sensitive issues, but now, you know, it gave an opportunity for us as a family to talk about it. And um, one thing I didn't realize, so my father worked on this as a construction carpenter on this exhaustive abusive work contract in Namibia, and he... He had um, a nervous breakdown. Soon after the contract, he, he was coming back by train, and on the train, he was hearing imaginary voices, and he realized that those voices were imaginary. And he, was, he also was mugged on the train. So I thought all these years, I thought that the mugging triggered the nervous breakdown, but it was actually the exhaustive work contract. So that was a big revelation. Also, when my father afterwards he worked for place for people with disabilities, he couldn't go back to construction carpentry because he was taking medication. He couldn't climb on 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 high ladders, um, and so at the place he worked uh, for for people with disabilities, he was pensioned off quite young. And he told us that he, um, you know, they were given an option, and he wanted to be pensioned off early, and and. We, now, when I wrote the book, he said, no, they actually pensioned him off for medical reasons. And I felt so sad um, that that was the reason. And that also relies on the pride he had that he didn't you know, want to share that aspect with our family. And, and generally, um, I didn't, you know, my father was an alcoholic up until I was 10 years old. He's fortunately overcome that. And Mm. I think I saw my father's frailty and and writing the book made me step back and just realize the impact of apartheid on on my father, Um, that, you know, he worked on this exhaustive work contract at a time where there were no worker rights for people of color. He's the inferior treatment he received while he was in in, in a mental institution. So I I think I had a better realistic picture of what happened in, in my father's life writing the book. This is something I didn't send you, but um, let me ask you, do your
1: siblings did your siblings have a different or do they have a different viewpoint of what happened and, and how did it affect them as opposed to you? Like I'm sure you're dealing with, you know, this situation in one way. How were they dealing with it? You have a twin sister and you have a brother. Could you talk a little bit about their experiences?
2: Um, I think on the aspect of my dad, we, we all felt – the same and and all the the new revelations that we got where we see that together, and when my brother and my sister read the manuscript, they all said that they both said they were very emotional when they read the chapter of of my dad, so I think it's, it brought mm. almost collective collective closure and understanding for for all of us. That's really beautiful. Um,
1: you have a lot of interviews, as you mentioned earlier, um, people all over the world. Uh, some of them are friends. Actually, most of them seem to be your friends, um, mm-hmm. and that's great. So you have friends of all ethnicities. Uh, one of your friends, you have uh, 25 years, a, a white woman, and uh, this is a hot topic here in America. She says she believes um, people should be colorblind. What do you feel about that, um, yourself and and for people uh, in South Africa. Do you think that will work?
2: Yes, that's from my friend Anna. I I do feel that while race is a construct, it does define engagement, and I do believe that people should consider how they engage with others and and the impact of race. For example, a case in point is that... um, CoVID in, in the United States is affecting people of color disproportionately due to systematic inequality you know the access to quality health care, um, living in communities with poor diet choices, um, limited access to affordable housing so that people live in cramped conditions and can't socially distance so because of, of the historic, of, of historic factors and um, racial systematic racial inequality one can't um, ignore race
1: yes i agree i i can i don't think you can be colorblind um and i find it um one of the stories you told uh, was about yourself being an accountant and uh, moving up in the ladder and how difficult it was and and your interactions with white south africans and you had a had to make a decision of whether to go into a conversation about race with them based on what they would say. So, you know, if they were like, um, I had nothing to do with apartheid, you might take it another way and probably try to ignore that. But then if they seem to be empathetic to um, recognizing that, you know, you are colored and that makes a difference how apartheid affected you, they would seem more genuine, then you had a more open conversation with them. Do you think that's something we need here in America? Is that what you think will help here in America? Is that People, white people, being empathetic and, and seeing us, seeing our color, and how it really does affect us. Oh,
2: yes, I I do believe empathy is is a much better, if an effective approach than than white guilt. You know, white guilt leads to paralysis and inaction, and empathy leads to uh, connection and action.
1: You have a topic we didn't put in on her, but you have a whole chapter about fear of lack. And desire to dominate. Talk to the audience just a little bit about that. And what that means.
2: Um, I and I started that chapter looking across uh, instances in history, looking at the Mongolian Empire, the Sulu Empire in South Africa, and and other examples. World War One, World War Two, and a, a lot of at the the root of conflict. You know, it's um, it is about a fear of not having. It it, it is. There is an economic component to it a um, uh, belief that there is scarcity and one needs to hold on to resources for oneself and some in some instances that fear of, of scarcity or not having is combined with um, with with a, a racial domination and um, one needs to unpack the, the reasons for um, Conflict and also get a place where where people feel that um, that resources can be shared. Mm,
1: Yes, I I feel the same way about the resources. I always tell people it's really about resources. They they think that you're taking away something from them. You know, we have here in America the other Mm -hmm. the Mexicans. Uh, Muslims, African Americans, you're taking your jobs mm-hmm. because of affirmative action, um, action. Because you're migrating up from, you know, South America, uh, you're taking our, the jobs from, you know, the white Americans who were in the factories. Um, you know, the people with Islam uh, who who practice Islam. You know, maybe they're going to uh, destroy our homes. It's this this fear, and and then also maybe you're going to take our lives. So so it's very visceral. Mm. It's a, you know, it's a very visceral thing. Um, that that fear and and related to resources and um, the desire to dominate is to me is kind of an egotistical thing. I feel <laughs> it's really gluttonous. You know what I mean? Um, there there yes. is enough because we throw away food all the time. There's land that is not being mm-hmm. used here in America and across the globe that people can build houses on and have fresh water and so on and so forth. So um, the, the, the the desire to dominate is. Um, Again, to me gluttonous, let me ask you this you talk about technology and how that can help people deal with some of these issues of oppression, um discrimination, um, you know balancing out these resources. Talk to the audience a little more. what does that mean? What does it look like when you when you, what technology would be helpful
2: um well, well I'll address it at two levels. One, just on exposing discrimination, social media, and the ability to film on phones creates more awareness. Now people are confronted with racial injustice as it's been shown to the masses, which creates accountability and demand for change. And then about how we can use technology to address issues like financial inclusion, access to health, access to education, and if we can um, develop good software uh, that's available on our mobile phones um, to bring all these resources into our homes. It can help with um, stemming inequality.
1: I love the story about the software that was made for the workers. I think they were migrant workers um, somewhere, and they needed to send money home to their family. They only got one day off. Um, and they were always yes. just standing in long lines waiting to try to transfer the money, and then it cost to transfer this money. Um, that was really great. Um, that was one of your friends. They have a, a venture capital company, I think. Is that, I might be mixing up the it, stories. It, it,
2: it, it was a, a fintech transfer, money transfer company based out of Hong Kong, and it was to help um, Filipino yes. migrant workers who, so before we had to, to stand in long queues, spend the whole day standing in a long queue paying very high transaction fees, and now they can uh, transfer money home uh, over to their family back home using their phone. They don't need to stand in queues, and the transaction fee is a fraction of the cost. And I encourage we really need more of those types of solutions and innovation to be directed to address and solve for problems for people at the base of the pyramid.
1: Yeah, that was I was like that that seems so easy, you know, just like wow, that one little problem and there are many little problems mm-hmm. that would make a big impact on people's lives, you know. Um I think that's what the entrepreneur social entrepreneurship is about. You know, finding a mm-hmm. problem that people are having and then coming up with some kind of solution. Um and, and that it's not about profits per se. It's about helping alleviate, I guess, people's pain and um you know they're having um just one last question because we're getting short of time here are you going to write another book this book came out last year are you going to be writing another book and if so what would the what would the topic be about uh,
2: it's uh, this book took a lot of time i do uh want to write about things that i really care about that i'm passionate about and i do care about um racial equality and racial reconciliation, especially given my background, have been raised during apartheid. Um, it's At this moment, there isn't anything that's um, really triggering me to get back to, right. to writing, but who knows what the future holds. Well, thank you for writing this book. I think
1: actually should maybe go into um, workplaces some things for people to read, maybe even colleges and curriculum so that people can have this discussion about these issues. And again, as you mentioned in the book, you have stories from all over the globe. It's not just South Africa. It's not just America. It's all over. You know, um, Armenian, you have um, Beirut. I mean, you have all over the place where people are dealing with the same issues and we can learn from each other. I, I, I think, um, Thank you again for coming on, Jasmine. Um, I hope you um, continue the great work. And um, don't forget about us in America. And come back on the show when you're doing another project.
2: Thank you, Joy. Thanks for reading my book and for this conversation.
1: All right. Well, you have a great evening because it's evening time for you.
2: <laughs> it is. It is. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
1: Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, That was Jasmine Bogenpole. She's from South Africa. She wrote a book, My Blood Divides and Unites, and is talking about her experience with apartheid and how uh, truth and reconciliation can possibly help and that we're not the only ones dealing with these issues. There are people all over the globe. She also talks about technology and how that can help deal with uh, issues of oppression and and resolving people's problems. So you want to check that out. I'm going to be giving away copies of it. You're going to have to follow her on Twitter. Um, you're also going to have to um, follow her on, um, uh, let's see, I think she has a Facebook page. Um, you want to check her out there. Uh, look on my social media. I'm at Joy Keys on Twitter, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys on uh, Facebook, and Saturdays with Joy Keys on Instagram. Check it out so you can find out how to win a book and also something else altogether. All right, talk to you
2: soon.
0: Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects or surfaces, such as remote controls and doorknobs. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. And stay home if you are sick. Call your healthcare care provider if you develop fever, cough, or difficulty breathing. For more tips, visit CDC.gov.
1: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.